Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. There are wide variations in care throughout the world, but as we have seen repeatedly also within the United States, you may have seen headlines that suggest your zip code is more important than your genetic code in determining your health and life expectancy. These data offer a window into the care being delivered and the fundamental inequities and health disparities that are pervasive and amplified by the pandemic. But the differences conceal even more troubling insights that transcend income, discrimination and racial lines and can be found everywhere. Waste permeates our system, generally estimated to be of the order of one third of $4.1 trillion we spend in the United States. Think about that for a second. If waste accounts for that much, that is the, the order of $1 trillion. Does it help to explain that a trillion dollars is a million million? Think what we could do with that money spent on actual healthcare. As Atul Gawande outlined in his New Yorker article, The Cost Conundrum, which focused on the town of McAllen in Texas, which is one of the most expensive districts for healthcare expenditure in the United States, did this work demonstrate this additional spending results in better outcomes for patients receiving healthcare? Based on the standard metrics of quality of care, it does not. In some of the original work around these discrepancies, the data showed that if you live in a high spending area of healthcare, you receive more medical treatments. How much, you ask? 60% more medical treatments? That was made up of more frequent tests, procedures, more visits with specialists, and more frequent admissions to hospitals. But when measured against matched cohorts of people with similar diseases and health profiles, they did no better than other patients who'd lived in areas with lower medical care being delivered. These measurements held for survival, patients' restoration of function, and satisfaction with the care they'd received. Join me on Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Elliot Fisher, He's the Professor of Medicine and Health Policy at the Dartmouth Institute and one of the original architects of the Accountable Care Organizations, or ACOs. Hi, Elliot. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. It's great to be here. Thanks. So we're seeing huge variations in care. This is not just in the U.S., but I think worldwide, where uh, an individual that comes in with a set of symptoms, maybe even a diagnosis, but they're getting widely variable treatment. And even though there's variations, we're not seeing the value of all of this difference. In fact, it can be a hindrance to the positive outcomes. What's going on? Well, 
you know, there, there are many things going on and they're, they're really, it's important to look at a couple of different kinds of variations. So if you think about the evidence-based stuff we get, like uh, percutaneous coronary intervention, you know, for, for angina, um, the variations in your likelihood of getting that for a heart attack are actually quite small because the evidence is very, very strong that your life will be saved if you're in the middle of an acute, acute myocardial infarction and someone blows a balloon up and pushes that little clot out of the way. The evidence for stable angina, you know, when you've got a fixed obstruction is much weaker. And what you see is tremendous variations in the likelihood of you getting that particular intervention. Um, and that's part because the science is weak about who really benefits, although the science has gotten a lot better and it's pretty clear that people with stable angina don't actually benefit much from early intervention if they're not having acute coronary symptoms. So it's really important to understand the underlying causes of variation in clinical decision-making. Um, one is insufficient evidence, and that's pervasive in medicine. There's so many things being developed that have not been adequately evaluated. The last system, systematic review that I saw looked at 3,000 treatments. Half of them had evidence of effectiveness. So these are, these are things that we believe are going to be working, our clinicians believe, but we don't have the evidence to support it. The second thing is that we as clinicians, as practicing physicians, often fail to take into account how patients differ in their preferences for certain outcomes. So while we are the expert in knowing what the outcomes should be, equally important, patients are the experts in what the different outcomes mean, mean to them. So for breast cancer, early treatment, do women want to preserve their breast? Um, some women feel that's absolutely essential, whereas other feel their breast has betrayed them that decision should be theirs, not the clinicians, not the physician who's trying to treat them because the outcome differences are trivial between those, except in the patient's experience of those clinical outcomes. There's another kind of category of spending, a category of services, which is how often do you go see the doctor? Um, how much time do you spend in the hospital? Those are decisions we're taught nothing about in medical school. And when you look across US regions, and this is what we did in the, in the early 90s, what we found is that there's some regions, you know, there's basically a twofold difference in per capita spending, twice as much money spent for Medicare beneficiaries in high spending regions compared to low spending regions. Group them into fifths, the top fifth, the bottom fifth, it's a 60% difference. The explanation is that those people are spending much more time in the hospital, 60% more patient days in the hospital, and seeing almost twice as many specialists per person um, in the high spending regions. What our early work revealed, um, and quite convincingly, um, was that the people in the high spending regions were not getting any benefit from that additional treatment. Quality was no better, health outcomes were no better, patient experience was no better, um, but they were spending 60% more, 60 of their more time seeing docs. What that did was sort of crack um, a widely held assumption that more medical care is always better and revealed that, well, we could, uh, you know, there's about 30% of healthcare spending that's being wasted on unnecessary stuff. People are getting the same number of stents in both places. We're all practicing to the extent of our ability, but they're just spending more time getting unnecessary care. And that led to trips to Washington to explain it to Republicans and Democrats. Peter Orzog started walking around with, you know, with our maps, you know, talking to Congress. 
And that's what led us to start thinking about, so how can we reduce the waste in American healthcare so that we can provide great medical care to everybody, which I'm totally convinced we should be able to do. Well, we certainly ought to be able to do it, given how much we spend uh, comparatively to all these other places that are delivering, um, let's be clear, I think for the most part, better care in many instances, not across the board, but certainly in a lot of instances. A couple of points around those, um, uh, you know, groupings that you saw. Did you see any geographic breakdown? Because there's a part of me that just intuitively would say, well, if you're seeing more care, you're closer to uh, large healthcare facilities. Is is there a, a relationship there or is it completely random across the geography? It's not completely random. So, but rural area, there are rural areas that get a whole lot more and rural areas that don't. You can compare San Francisco and Sacramento, both pretty urban places with Los Angeles, twofold differences. You can compare, compare Minneapolis with Florida, twofold differences. Um, Uwe Reinhardt always used to quip, how is it possible that the best medical care in the world costs twice as much as the best medical care in the world? <laughs> as you were saying, we have good care, but it costs twice as much in some regions. So it, that didn't explain it. And you can, we can, we've looked across academic medical centers, twofold differences across between academic medicals, the patient's experience and cost of care in high spending academic medical centers compared to low spending academic medical centers. Okay, so so my attempt at the obvious explanation fails immediately. Did you find any underlying elements that were able to drive you towards potential solutions? What was driving these differences? Because certainly as a patient, I want to be in the lower treatment if I'm getting the same outcomes, I think. So the the major factors are really different amounts of capacity. You know, how many hospital beds per capita do you have? You, you, you know perfectly well, Nick, that, you know, hospitals, the way they're paid now under fee-for-service, they have to keep their beds full. And, and we train, you know, financial leaders of hospital, leaders of hospitals in how to generate revenue because they, they and the way you do that is by having your physicians fully occupied um, and your beds fully full. And what we see is that the combination of the numbers of physicians per capita you know, and bed and and beds per capita explains more than half of the variation in U.S. in spending across regions. So, you know, if you're if you're in Los Angeles, still the highest, most expensive, one of the highest, most expensive places in the country, you're like three times as likely to have ten or more physicians involved in your care. And if you think it's fun going to talk to multiple specialists to to work to follow up on every little abnormality someone finds, um, most patients don't appreciate that extra time, although they think they're getting great care still. Um, and so, so the, the benefits, it's hidden from view because we can't observe it without measuring it. And the opportunities to do better are just pervasive. So uh, tremendous scope, but obviously some significant challenges and, you know, that variability driven by some basic economics that, I, you know, if I have capacity, I need to fill it under the current model. As you thought about this and the way in which we address it, some of this must come back to standards of care, perhaps care pathways, which, you know, we've heard about, talked about. But, you know, I, I repeatedly hear, no, no, I must have my clinical freedom. 
What's our, how do we navigate through this? Well, evidence helps. Clinical pathways can help where the evidence is clear. Otherwise, it's really got to be about changing the incentives so that, so that physicians and the systems that support them and support patients can try to improve the outcomes of care creatively. You know, so that they can deliver the best possible care in the least expensive way. And that's the when you look at what the way, you know, some places, you know, Mass General, for instance, when it shifted most of its payment models to, you know, alternative payment models, which we may talk about some more things like accountable care organizations, um, they started to say, how can we invent better ways of caring for our patients with chronic illness? You know, and the old way was under fee-for-service, you know, let's have, you know, a patient come see us, come see a specialist for every single thing they need. And, you know, there was a classic patient that was described to me who, you know, had cystic fibrosis, had had a lung transplant, and she was experiencing 200 contacts with the healthcare system, most of them in person in a given year, you know, with a good chronic care manager, uh, a nurse who could help her navigate and do the talking with the specialists. She went to, you know, fewer than 10 contacts a year or something like that. So she was given her life back. So you can, you can deliver great care in innovative ways um, that make sure that the right treatments are being given, but without the burden that's imposed by this relentless fee-for-service healthcare system that has us on the treadmill of keeping the offices full, not allowing us to invest in things that aren't paid for under fee-for-service, like a chronic disease, a, pay, a nurse manager to help you manage your chronic conditions. So they're, they're, we can, through redesign, rather than rationing, we can radically transform healthcare. So the physicians still have flexibility in their decision-making, where evidence is there, they should be using it. But most of the decisions docs make are made with some degree of uncertainty and, and need for judgment to use their judgment to say what's best for the patient and another visit or another test or a treatment that's unproven isn't necessarily the best way to improve outcomes for those patients. So as you're talking, I'm thinking a lot about the, the sort of gatekeeper model that exists in the NHS system in the UK. A, a lot of the care is I, I'm going to use the term control, but I, I don't think it's full control, but there's certainly some aspects of gatekeeping. And there was a, a paper written many years ago that talked about the value of that, because you can't overwhelm the specialist by having everybody show up with minor ailments and you need somebody to sort of limit or, or at least filter what runs up to the, the specialists that are the most highly paid and delivering, you know, the most appropriate care, let's hope. How do we reconcile that in the United States where there seems this just insistence on, I must have direct access. I, I have a, a problem with uh, X in my body. I'm going to go directly to that specialist. Is there a a way of reconciling that so that people don't feel that they're being inhibited or limited? Well, it, you know, it's obviously a difficult dance. Um, at the same time, team-based care, where, you know, a primary care clinician, if there's any uncertainty, can reach out to the specialist and get a phone consult immediately, um, you know, can be incredibly effective. Much more parsimonious, both of the 
specialist time because most of the time they'll be able to say, sounds great. I don't need to see them. Here's what you do. Or say, that sounds uncertain. And I had a one of my students in our program on population health um, described, you know, banging his knee, uh, twisting his knee. And, you know, the routine in, in some specialty-oriented systems would have been MRI before I see you, you know, and I can't see you for three weeks. Um, so, and this was it. So in Kaiser Permanente, where he was getting care, which most think of as a, it's a capitated system where many see it as a constrained like the UK. Well, the orthopedic surgeon was on the phone within 20 minutes of, of his seeing the primary care doc, came down to see the patient, did an actually very careful physical exam, was able to say exactly what the cause of the injury was uh, and prescribed the, the treatment that did not require an MRI you know, required, you know, some physical therapy and the guy was better in, in you know, in three, three weeks. Um, so, the, so the clinical expertise, special, we need specialist expertise. The question is, how do you get it where it needs to be? And, you know, te with telehealth, with phone consults and with payment models that don't require everyone to touch the patient in order to, and send a bill, you know, Primary care systems are encouraged to have clinician experts, so they make sure the right person gets to see the, the right treatment gets prescribed to the patient. So I, I actually really like that because to me that's, I, I'm going to say telehealth 4.0. I'm, I'm just randomly picking four at this point, but, but you know, sometime further downstream where we are now, which was telehealth is great, everybody wants access, and then there's a little bit of a pullback. But what you're describing is that almost instant, uh, or at least you know, close to instant access for the primary care provider or the, the initial consultation that brings in the specialist, it makes them more available and you know, is optimizing from time um, and allows for better outcomes with that contribution. So I, I think there's a pathway there but I immediately come back to the payment models and the incentives that you measured and or, or mentioned at the, the outset. And, you know, you have a long and storied history in creating ACOs. I, 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 you know, you're central to that model, which despite being introduced and implemented back almost 10 years ago, if not 10 years, hasn't delivered on the promise that I think we expected. Is there another piece to this puzzle that needs to be included? Yeah, I think that I think first it, you're right. It, we haven't, although when we did the initial modeling that persuaded the Congressional Budget Office to approve it, it estimated that we and they estimated we get about the amount of savings from ACOs we have because it's partial pickup, right? It, it's only being picked up by a few places. You know, 30 or so percent of Americans, or maybe it's 30 million, actually it's 30 million Americans are covered under the model. Um, and, you know, what's required for that model to succeed is you have to have all of the payments to the provider group under this new payment model. Right now it's a mixed model. Under the mixed model, you know, I'll see my ACO patients and actually I'll try not to see my ACO patients. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll try to manage their care with nurses and whatever. We'll have them and, and we'll reduce the cost of care for those patients and probably improve outcomes for the subset of our patients. 
But for the other patients and who are paid fee for service, well, we're going to still put them in the hospital. We're going to raise costs. We're going to you know do all of the all of the traditional ways we practice under fee for service medicine. So it's actually more expensive. You know, costs go up. You've saved a little money, but rewarded them for saving money on your ACO patients. And meanwhile, you've increased costs because you've freed up some capacity in the hospital to take care of your non-ACO fee-for-service patients. So the way the model will work, and I'm I'm still totally optimistic. I think we're starting to, you know, you listen to people, ACOs are alternative payment models, value-based payment. It's 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 still the coming wave. It's further off, it's a long way offshore. <laughs> But it's everyone is, you know, agrees that it's where we have to go. Docs and hospitals aren't very well prepared for it. They're scared of it. It requires change, especially if you're in two models. But when you move to a model that's fully capitated, that's when you can do what I just described. Team-based models, ready, ready access to telehealth or asynchronous care, like, you know, email or text messages with your clinician, reducing the burden of care on patients and you know, if you can take care of patients more efficiently in primary care, now you can make it afford to make specialist care through innovative methods much more accessible. And so I think the evidence, you know, where you look at what's happened at KP, Kaiser Permanente, compared to fee-for-service quality generally in California, um, KP is just hand and fist above everybody else in terms of its ability to take great care of people with diabetes, heart failure, you know, there may be some places where it's access to the tertiary care, quaternary care seems more difficult or is more difficult. But I'll tell you, when my daughter, you know, had a had a newborn with a question of cytomegalovirus infection and brain damage, she was seeing the one of the country's leading expert on that within 24 hours of the birth. So I, right. So I, I think great, um, potential not uh, you know it's not evenly distributed it seems to be just uh, a little bit west coast uh, um yes, centric yes. but potential to expand I, I think opportunity to drive out waste mm -hmm. um and deliver a a, a a better product for the money that we're paying what what would you leave us leave us with in terms of the next steps well, I think, you know, I think the, the, the important next steps are to get all payers, commercial payers, Medicaid, Medicare, aligned around a common model, common model for ACO work, whether it's signing up, people have to choose, choose once a year, that would probably be ideal, if you have a choice, um, choose a different system if you want each year, but all patients in the system should be paid under this, you know, prospective capitated payment um, with good performance measures that make sure they're not stinting on care, um, which are perfectly available now. So I think if we move toward a, uni a unified approach to payment um, and systems decided that, that and were willing to do it or forced to do it, we could accelerate the improvement in healthcare rather dramatically. Elliot, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Nick, this was fun. Good luck. Take care. We need alignment on payment models for everyone in the business of healthcare. This is not about removing choice, imposing a single payer system, or limiting people's access to care. This is about delivering the right care to the people everywhere, 
not just those fortunate to be in an area that has the right match between available healthcare and patient demand, but to everyone. We should all be united in removing all the waste from the system, both at a system and clinical level, but also at a patient level. Your better pill to swallow is to acknowledge that each intervention and treatment comes with its own set of risks and rewards. Adjust each decision based on the risk-reward equation for the individual, accepting that more is not necessarily better. And this is especially true for healthcare. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.